Hear the word of God from Revelation 8, chapters 8 through 11. There's a long reading. Bear with me. But let's read this together. And yet, actually, before I say I go to the reading, I probably, this is why you don't have the pastor do the scripture reading. He has, has to start speaking. But um, I want you guys to know something. Actually, it's very intentional on our part that you actually hear all of the book of Revelation read during our sermon series in the book of Revelation. So that's why we're not keeping these readings short. We actually want you to actually hear the whole book read out loud. And that was the intentionality of this original letter. It was actually intentionally meant to be read out loud. So we're reading through the whole book during a whole sermon series. So that's why this section today is extra long. So bear with me as we dive into this scripture together. Hear the word of God from Revelation chapters 8 through 11. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and a green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth (coughs) and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only tortured them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of a sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people who seek death will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name is Hebrew, is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, destroyer. <clears throat> the first woe is past, and two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. 
The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were a fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. <coughs> the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that could not see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murder, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and in the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, <clears throat> the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. I was given a reed like a measuring rod, was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will travel to the holy city for 42 months. And I'll appoint my two witnesses, and they'll prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At the very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. <coughs> the second woe has passed, the third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated at the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. 
The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for you judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was a scene, the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hellstorm. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you think I'm about to answer all of the questions you have after that reading, I'm here to tell you up front that I am not. Uh, I, I just in 30 minutes, there's no way, right? Um, good morning. My name is Eric Weiner. I'm one of the pastors here at Waypoint. And I just want to say what a joy it is to be gathered among the saints in this body this morning. Part of the DNA of, of Waypoint Church from day one has been to be a church that reflects the diversity of the kingdom of God. To be a community where every tribe, tongue, and nation can gather and worship and live in light of the kingdom of God, starting right here in the triangle. That's what we're about. That's what we're doing. And as a church, we value the word of God. And so it's a blessing to seek God's word together as we aim to grow and trust in all that it has to offer. Our passage this morning is Exhibit A, right? We value it. All of it. All of it. All right, now, wherever you're at, if you'd go ahead and pull out all of your magic Dakota rings, we're going to jump into Revelation 8 through 11. Now, I say that in jest, but, but I think that there are many people who have learned to approach the book of Revelation with this kind of literal, historical, interpretive lens that can lead to some outlandish interpretations. I mean, there's, you're looking at world leaders and saying, okay, who's, who's this guy? What's, what he, how's he fit in with, with this part of Revelation? What's happening here? What's, you're just making all these interpretations, making all these predictions of what's going on in our world. And it can lead some to be fearful, others to be confused, and ultimately, I think, serve as a poor representation of what God actually has to say to us. And maybe it's that kind of reputation of revelation that makes many treat the book like restricted territory. It's like our own little biblical Area 51. We all have our theories about it, but nobody goes there. If we think that revelation is not for us and that it's not profitable to us, then we are misunderstanding the book of Revelation. No, it was not written to you, but it is for you. And it should encourage us. It should awaken us not only to how things are, but to how things will be. There are many things about Revelation that seem strange and confusing. And to that I say, amen, absolutely, I'm with you. But hear this. Hear this. You don't have to check your theology at the door of the book of Revelation. And many of the things we are seeing and hearing, though they sound new and strange, are actually connecting back to something old to help us grasp it. Old Testament, old. So what we need is not to avoid revelation, but to become more acquainted with God's word and how it is working. Now this morning we get to engage in a topic that many of you will find thrilling. And I'm being facetious here because I'm talking about God's judgment. Okay? Even the idea of judgment is something that makes us feel uncomfortable. 
But hear me when I say that this is an incredible thing for us to say. And here's why. We live in a world where our general disposition is one of innocence. To our knowledge, we've done nothing wrong to anyone. So what grounds could God have for holding judgment against us? If I commit a wrongdoing, I can just make amends for it. So give me a good reason that would justify the nature of God's judgment on the earth. Make it make sense. And we say that all while rejecting that God is creator, that he is the giver of life, that we owe our very lives to him, that we live all of life before him and that we are made to bring glory to his name in all the earth. But we don't. We try to construct a world without God. We try to flex our innovations and champion our discoveries as though we don't need God. And we see this happening throughout the biblical story over and over and over again. You live in a world that does this, that treats God as though he's not needed, that does it so directly and so casually that it feels normal to you. Where in all the earth do people give glory to the name of God? Where in all the earth do people give glory to the name of God? You have to think about it, right? If it is not everywhere, then something's wrong. If it's not everywhere, then something is wrong. I'm on my second run through of this show called The, the West Wing. If you've heard of it, it's an old fictional show about the daily on the job drama and inner workings of the President of the United States alongside his White House uh, senior staff. And one of the things I love about the show is how they're able to bring into focus the humanity of the people serving in such high functioning positions, all while showing the gravity of the authority of one of the most powerful positions in all the world. I, th I find it fascinating, just the, the fast pace, it's, just, it's so good. And just in an episode I watched this week, the, the White House Deputy Chief of Staff is asking for the, uh, the, the resignation of the Surgeon General because they didn't like something that she publicly said. And her, her, in the meeting, her, her refusal uh, leads to a, a common refrain in the show. The, the Deputy Chief of Staff is not getting through to her, so, so he needs to remind her, you serve at the pleasure of the President. In other words... I'm just the messenger, but I come on his authority. Yield. But the way we live our lives says, I serve at the pleasure of myself, whether God likes it or not. This is one of the major problems of our day. We would rather please ourselves than please God. We would rather please ourselves than please God. We would rather live in a way that brings pleasure to ourselves, even if it dishonors God, than to deny ourselves, even if it honors Him. In Revelation 8 and 9, what John is witnessing is the disruption of a world order that is so confident in itself apart from God. Self-sufficient, intellectually brazen, a world of people who have taken their very human agency, ushered forth toward exploration, discovery, and cultivation, but not to give glory to God, not to demonstrate how great he is in all the earth, but to show just how little we think we need him at all. If you go back to Genesis, in the story of the Tower of Babel, it was the innovation of the brick 
that showed what human intellect could do. That's what will mask our social anxieties and insecurities. Today, it's, it's digital technology and cyberspace built on the backs of those who discovered electricity and computers. Aren't we so impressive? And so what we see unfolding in Revelation 8 and 9 is the disruptive nature of God's divine judgment upon the proud and unrepentant world. And as Pastor Lawrence said last week, this is not a chronological unfolding of events. The word he used is recapitulation, meaning it's the retelling of events from, from different perspectives. So what we, what we see happening with the seven trumpets is, is a different vantage point from what we've already seen begun with the seven seals. So for any of you movie fans out there, maybe this, you could say what John is doing is the original Christopher Nolan films, right? I mean, it's, it's like Dunkirk with the, the three different storylines going on at the same time, but it's happening at different intervals of time. Or, or maybe it's like Tenet, where you, you don't really know what's going on at all. You just know that things are moving forward and backwards and backwards and forwards. But... And so as we're going forward in Revelation, I, I want you to keep in view that these judgments are moving forward from the reality the starting point from the reality that the slain lamb is in the throne room and he's the one who's able to open the scrolls. That's where we started from here. The slain lamb is worthy to bring to completion the plans and promises of God. And here in chapter 8, we have, begun, we, we, we have the beginning of the sounding of trumpets and their associated judgments. The sounding of the trumpets are God's response to the prayers of God's people. And so what we are seeing is that prayer really is God's appointed means of enacting his will. Prayer really is God's appointed means of enacting his will. God is using the prayers of his people as one of the ways he is advancing his kingdom. Do you believe this? Or do you think if prayer has no direct outcome, it must not have any real effect? Do you doubt that prayer is really working? Because it is. It does. Your prayers are doing something. And what we are seeing is that God is active even now, even before the second coming of Christ, answering the prayers of his people. Even now, even today, God is using our prayers to bend history into place, to bring into greater clarity the coming kingdom of God. That's what our prayers are doing. Maybe the one of the reasons that you've forsaken prayer in your life is because you've decided to go the way of the world. You've decided that prayer is unnecessary because you don't need God for your daily needs to be met. Or maybe the kingdom of God isn't even on your agenda and that's something that you still need to search your heart about. But Revelation is reminding us that prayer is not only a option, but it may be the best tool we have for advancing the kingdom of God here on earth. Not technology, not social innovation, but prayer. Our prayers are the enduring voice of God's people in the world today. And what the seven trumpets reveal is that God will vindicate those who have suffered for his sake. He will enact justice through his just judgment. And this is good news to the oppressed. I'm talking about the, the, the church universal here. 
But it's a hard pill to swallow for a world that has taken a long, hard look at God, spit in his face, and turned the other way. The danger for us is not that their response is egregious. Our danger is that it seems reasonable. Are you with me? So before we walk through these judgments, I want to make the connection that these these images we're seeing and hearing in this section should actually be familiar to you and it should actually be encouraging to you because what John is seeing sounds something like the fall of Jericho with the leading of Joshua mixed in with with these plague-like events from the Exodus account. That's what these images, these crazy sounding, these wild sounding images, they are appealing to this. In Joshua 6, 2 through 5, the Lord tells Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times, with a priest blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. What making this connection does between Revelation and Joshua here and with the Exodus account, first is it tells us something about the way God judges. It tells us something about how God judges. God's judgment is harsh, but it's not swift and immediate. He doesn't give Israel some kind of war strategy and then send them into attack. I bet the people on the fortified walls of Jericho scoffed at the priests taking the lead as they walked around the cities, as they walked around the the, the fortified wall for six days. Each day, Jericho had the opportunity to change their mind, to reconsider their position, but they don't. And we see a similar idea at play here in Revelation 8 and 9. God's judgment is growing more severe. It's growing more severe, but there's still restraint. It's not total yet. There's still time. The effect of his judgment is partial, as if to give the people opportunity to re-evaluate their ways before his judgment is complete. The second thing that we notice here is that this narrative points out to us this, this, this kind of biblical typological work at play. It's speaking to something about redemptive history, something about what God is doing. He's com- God is completing our salvation from beginning to middle to end. He is responsible for the whole package. I mean, just, just think about Israel's story for a second. What the Israelites walked through from their bondage in Egypt to their deliverance by way of the exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea, to being preserved in the wilderness and being given the promised land. This is real historical event, but it's also a beautiful picture of the greater salvation we are all to receive in full through the finished work of Jesus. Jesus is leading us into a promised rest. This is our story too. This is what we are living out right now. Did you know that? We're in the midst of this story, this salvation story right now. We are waiting for this rest. We are being preserved. We believe God is bringing about this rest. Not with Joshua, but with Jesus. What Revelation is telling us is that God preserves his people through judgment. 
and that we will be brought into a promised rest in a final sense in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what Revelation is moving us toward. This is what we are seeing begin to unfold with the seven trumpets. So even even with the first six trumpet blasts, we, we see restraint from God. Restraint because repentance is still possible. Turning and yielding to the Lord, saying, my desire is to please you, Lord, is still on the table. The trumpet blasts serve as warnings, sounding the alarms for a world that has fallen into a stupor unto the things of God to wake up. In these first four trumpets, what John sees is hail and fire mixed with blood hurled down on the earth, which leads to a third of the earth's vegetation being burned up. With the second trumpet blast, a huge mountain, a huge mountain is thrown into the sea, causing death and destruction of the third of the creatures and the ships. With the third trumpet blast, a great star fell down from the skies into the rivers and springs of water, wormwood, Bitterness. A third of the earth's drinking water became bitter, undrinkable. With the fourth trumpet blast, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars were struck, causing an increase in darkness both day and night. What are we seeing unfolding here? We're seeing a, 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 a total disheaval of, of, of creation. I mean, just, just imagine this. Just imagine. Imagine what would happen to a society dependent on commerce from, a, from the sea if a third of their product was gone. What would happen to people dependent on that, on that food source? What about the families dependent on those jobs and that income? Imagine a third of the drinkable water available being utterly bitter, undrinkable. I mean, nations would go in panic. People would get sick. Imagine losing a third of the daytime, a third of the vegetation. I mean, I think if, I think if somebody pulled the plug on the internet for us, we, we would just lose our minds. Like literally, what if we didn't have GPS anymore? We would, we would literally get lost. I mean, I think some of you guys can make it home, but, but maybe that's it. You might stay home. I once heard this comedian say that if, if, he, went, if he went back in time, he, he doesn't think he could convince people that he was from the future. He'd say, yeah, we, we invented this thing called the smartphone. And they asked, well, well, how do you do it? He'd say, I don't know. We have found a million ways to create comfort and security for ourselves. We've got a million different kinds of insurance, grocery stores on every street corner, plentiful drinking water at the comforts of our homes, entertainment in excess, so much so that we could literally bore ourselves to death trying to find something to watch, more information at our fingertips than we could even read in a lifetime. And what God wants to get across to us is this. We think we trust him. All the while, we have made for ourselves a lifestyle that says, I've got plenty to fall back on in case this whole God thing doesn't work out. God, I trust you. But if worse comes to worse, I don't need you. Do you think you're capable of that? Now, it's important for us to keep in view that, he, that, that, that John's audience the, the people he's addressing are, are the seven churches. Do you, do you remember the seven churches from, from Revelation 2 and 3? He's talking to the seven churches. 
And part of their problem is the allure of worldly compromise, of diluting the gospel in such a way that it makes no effect among its members nor among its community. And so what we need to rediscover is that this life is not all there is. The control we enjoy is not the stronghold we think it is. I think we've all seen just how fleeting all of life's so-called securities really are. If that hasn't hit you yet, then wake up. The trumpet blasts undeniably bring about judgment. And, and, And what are the intended consequences of this judgment if not to awaken the world to its false sense of security in the idols of their own making? Notice in the judgments that a third of the things is destroyed. What do we make of that? It's possible that John is, is showing progression here. I mean, he's, he, there's a worsening of things. I mean, you see this at play. Re- Revelation 6.8 says that the, the horses were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. This is back during the, the seven seals unfolding. And, and so we see, uh, uh, we go from a, a, a third, or a fourth to a third, a fourth to a third. Now, I'm not a math guy, but that's more, right? That's more. That's a worsening. That's getting worse. But what I also draw from this is that even in judgment, God is merciful. Even in judgment, God is merciful. Meaning God, he's he's restraining it. I mean, why not wipe out the whole thing? What prevents it if not that God is who he says he is from beginning to end? Even in judgment, we must come to understand the immutability of God. The immutability of God. Meaning God is unchanging in his character and in his will and in his promises. And God said he wouldn't do it like that again. The, The judgment of God is always from the vantage point that he is a God who is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. He's not easily angered. And even in his anger, he is just. The second is that God preserves the saints. God preserves the saints. In the the midst of God's judgment, shouldn't we ask why the church continues to persevere? Why is the church still around? Right? I mean, surely by human standards, there have been nations functioning as dominant powers that have risen and fallen. Surely by military prowess and economic abundance, these nations of old were set up to succeed. Why is it that even the world's strongest and brightest can fade into the backdrop of human history and yet the church still remains? Why is that? John is writing to an oppressed church and Rome didn't wipe them out. We're standing here and we're sitting here in Durham, North Carolina. We made it here. How does he do it? How do we do it? God's people remain. Is it because we're smarter? I'm not smarter. Are you smarter? Can it be anything other than the mighty work of God? Who else can do this? Who else can preserve like this? But God, God preserves. Isn't there solace in knowing that you don't have to rely on yourself? Even the disasters of the world or corruption of the nations are not too much for us to overcome because God does it. We overcome through him. 
Yet even the dismantling of the world as we've come to enjoy, it does not provoke the upheaval one might expect. People are more proud than they look. They still think they can manage. And so we see this in in Revelation 9, 20 and 21. It says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. That's the the response to to this judgment, to these trumpets blasting, to the, the call to wake up. It's still slumber. We become like the things we create. And we are all idol makers. As you saw, idols can't see or hear or walk. People are becoming blind to the reality of the things of God. They're becoming deaf to the trumpet sounds of repentance and they're becoming set in their ways, unwilling to move even a little, settled into a world order that is crumbling. It's falling apart. The call for us this morning is to find the solid ground of Christ to stand because all other ground is sinking sand. Now, as many of you know, I have three kids Four, two, and nine months. So life is chaotic. And let me tell you that that a regular occurrence in my home right now is someone screaming, crying. Now, hear me. Not screaming and crying. Screaming, crying. (laughs) And and my wife, Sarah, she she doesn't understand why I do it so much, but but here I am. But in, in all seriousness, usually one of my kids has, has taken matters into their own hands. Someone takes something someone else wanted or had, and the means to rectify the situation is, is by force. I mean, you don't, you don't need to have kids to know this. They, they do this. This is what happens. And so one of us swoops in with judgment. And in these moments, we, we try to tell our kids, if, if you choose to keep going the way you're going, punishment will ensue. Losing toys, losing privileges, time out, whatever, whatever we can think of. It's sometimes hard to find something that works. But, but if you choose to change, if you choose to change, if you act in love and with kindness toward one another, then you won't be punished. You'll get to enjoy the blessings of family life. And what I have learned from this is nothing. It's nothing because it doesn't seem to work yet. And so, so if you have advice, come, come see me afterward. But, but what I've observed, what I've observed is, is that when I lay out these two propositions of, of punishments or blessings, it tends to result in more screaming, crying. And I have two, two working ideas for why that would be. The, the first is this. I have no idea what I'm doing. And that seems very, very much a possibility. The, the second is that they've already decided that they are going to go the way they're going. And they can't imagine doing things any other way. And I'm called to love them through it. Now, maybe that's too sophisticated for four and two. I don't know. But I choose to believe it's not too sophisticated for us. What John is reminding Christians of is to not lose hope because Christ is really risen. He's ascended. 
He's on the throne right now. That's what this series has been about. That wasn't written to us, but that is for us. John's also saying, don't, don't find your prize in the allure of the world. And if you have, turn around. Don't find your eyes in the allure of this world and all the prize that it has to offer. Turn around. Turn around. It's not too late. It's attractive and seemingly good to take, but it's not what you think it is. And it won't deliver on the promises that it's making. Instead, take and eat of the joys of Christ crucified and Christ risen. Stand on the solid ground of the finished work of Jesus and wait for him to finish all that he has set out to do. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't. Trust the pierced hands of Christ seated on the throne. So we're called to wait. So how then should we wait? I believe our our waiting is defined by our witness and by our worship. By our our witness and by our worship. And and so we're going to end here in in, in Revelation 11. And it's it's not even fair because there's there's still so much to cover. Not enough time. This is going to be really quick. But here here in in, in Revelation 11, you you have the the two witnesses and, and you have the seventh trumpet. And as part of the second woe from the sixth trumpet blast, things are starting to heat up and and people are still not turning to God. So God sends out these two prophetic witnesses for 42 months. That's three and a half years for you, okay? And and so now some some uh, interpreters think that these witnesses are meant to be symbolic of the church and symbolic of of the work the church is called to do. Some think it might specifically be referring to, to two people, like, like Moses and Elijah, because these, these people, if you, if you look at what they're doing, they, they seem to be doing Moses and Elijah-like things. And so may, maybe that's what's going on here. But whoever they are, we can learn from their witness, because we too are called to be spirit-empowered witnesses, testifying in our day to the glory and goodness of God before an idol clinging world and we don't accomplish the plans of God by our own might but by abiding in the very power of God hear this no matter the cost no matter the cost this this is how we turn back the clock on our our own inclinations to, to exclusively do things to please ourselves We count the cost of following Christ. We see the immeasurable beauty of what he is producing. And we come to realize, you know what? God's way is better. His way is better. And and you follow him. As Craig Keener says, only when the church becomes prepared to challenge the idols of society with the claims of Christ, as, as the two witnesses do in our text here, will we witness God's power in biblical fullness. And what we see is that that while some people see this prophetic witness as torment, some people hate the witness of the church, others actually do respond in repentance. Something that judgment apart from these witnesses working, we, we didn't see. Verse 13 says, At the very hour, at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second thing is, is, as we wait, we worship. So we witness, we worship. 
What follows is the, se- is the seventh trumpet blast. But the, the seventh trumpet blast is, is different from the previous six. It doesn't set out to describe some strange judgments upon the earth. But it proclaims what all of these things have been producing. What all the judgments and trials and witnessing has been producing all along. John takes us back to the heavenly places. And from there what we hear is this. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven. Which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. To those set in their ways, who have rejected God, who treat the demise of his people like a holiday celebration, this is torment. This is bringing to completion what they hate most. But to all the saints, those who have humbled themselves and rejoice in the glory of God and who exalt his name in all the earth, They see the kingdom of the world become the kingdom of God. Can you imagine? The fulfillment of the gospel, the redemption of all things. They see an enthroned Savior, the ancient of days, for whom it is said, He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so our response can be their response because we have faith that God will do this. And so we order our lives in worship to the only one who deserves it. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we lift our hands to you. We, we direct our hearts to you because, God, we, we know that you hear the cries of the saints. God, may we care about your kingdom come. May your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. God, that day by day as, as the pain and, and tragedies and the suffering of life wear on, God, we know that you sustain us. God, that we can just fall into your mighty hands knowing that you will continue to carry and preserve us till the end. God, would you hold us this morning? God, would you remind us of your goodness? God, may we continue to have faith that trusts you and trusts the things that you are bringing about even today. God, knowing that you will do it. We believe it. God, may we sing like it. May we worship you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.